0: Second Corinthians, Chapter One. Um, Very fitting that we go from a song that talks about. it's basically uh, a logical response, um, you know, all these great things about God, and then they get to the chorus, and it's like, so I'll basically stand here and just in complete abandonment to the one, right? I mean, it's, it only makes sense. I love the way that that song it flows from the verses into the chorus because it's like, uh, you did this, you did this, you did this, you did this, you did this. You did this. So I'll do this because anything else is completely makes no sense. Um, that's where we'll end up tonight. Uh, so maybe hey, we should have done that song after. Uh, that's where we're going to end up, um, but we're going to take kind of a, a, a different way to get there. Um, if you're here with us for the first time, or you're, you've kind of been hit and miss the last couple of weeks, we're uh, we're just going verse by verse through Second uh, Corinthians, and. Um, just letting God teach us uh, whatever he wants as we get to it uh, or whatever. And there are a lot of pastors that preach this way all the time because, uh, well, a part of the line of thinking, um, well, one reason is that it really, it kind of shows you that like Bible study is really, like it really is this easy. You just go slowly, one thing at a time, and think about what that means, and if you need to study up, you study up or whatever. And so it's kind of a really like a big corporate Bible study where I just kind of do all the talking. Um, but it, it's, a, it's a way of basically like us all learning together how to study God's Word. Um, but the other thing is you, you can't avoid some of the difficult like verses you kind of wish weren't there. Um, which let, let's admit, we all have those scriptures. You're like, oh man, I really wish that wasn't in there. Um, and that's okay. I think God's big enough for us to like wish that and him not be he didn't get his feelings hurt you know he's okay um but uh it thing is it's there for a reason and um as a pastor i can't just avoid some of those touchy subjects like we're going to get to tonight so this is one of those awkward for a pastor night um so welcome um through this letter uh paul has kind of an embattled history we'll just kind of get to that as we go so let's just pick up where we left off last week um So far, we've gone through um, God being a God of comfort, that in our affliction, when um, life is pressing on us, that word affliction means like pressure, uh, like literally the pressure applied to a grape, whenever they would make olive oil and stuff like that out of the olives and wine, out of the grapes and stuff, that pressure, when you feel life cranking on you like that, that the God of comfort, that's when he shows up. And uh, he shows up to comfort us by saying, hey, come here, and he draws us near. And as we are comforted, we are able to pass that on to other people who are also uh, suffering in that way. Last week, we talked about um, Paul's, uh, his um, integrity was being called into question, and he just systematically goes through and he's like, look, I have lived a life of holiness and simplicity and genuine sincerity among you, and just kind of the the audacity of someone to say, I've lived a holy life among you, but really it's pretty admirable that he was that confident in God's work in his life. And so this kind of brings us into a transition point, um, in uh, like attempts to help like make sense of things. These letters have been broken into chapters and uh, verse numbers and stuff like that. And sometimes the break is in is in the right spot, and sometimes it really maybe isn't. It really doesn't matter because we're going to treat it like one big letter anyway. Um, so here's where where he goes next, um, in verse twenty three. We'll, we'll look at twenty three and twenty four, and then we'll just kind of go one by one for there it says but i call god to witness against me it was to spare you that i refrain from coming again to corinth not that we lord it over your faith but we work with you for your joy for for you stand firm in your faith all right now uh in 23 he says uh basically god is my witness okay that's from the bible not just going with the wind um but I call God a witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrain from coming again to Corinth. All right? So the natural question is spare you from what? We'll get to that in just just a second. What I want to zero in on is him, uh, you know, a part of the, the thing that was called into question was that he kept changing his plans. People kept saying, oh, Paul's a flake. You know, he's unreliable or whatever. And he's saying, no, 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 no. It was to your benefit that I not that I not show up. Like he's just constantly, I mean... So far through the entire letter, I mean, he's just constantly reaffirming his relationship with them and the fact that he is for them, I mean, over and over and over again. And I wonder if, like, in his, like, pastoral heart, if that's his way of echoing what we were singing earlier that comes all throughout the scriptures, that God is for us. I wonder if he's basically like, okay, God's for him, so I'm going to be for him, and I'm going to let him know that I'm for him over and over and over and over again, so that that is a tangible reminder of the fact that God is for him as well, like he understands, like, he kind of has a representative voice for God to them. Um, There's a, like, when you're, like, in seminary and stuff, and they, like, teach you how to do stuff like hospital visits and funerals and all those kinds of things, it's like a real, the class is, like, so awesome because it's like, on Tuesday, we'll talk about how to do a wedding, and on Thursday, we'll talk about how to do a funeral, you're like, oh, okay, great. Um, And so it's just one of those kind of things, I'm like, yes, we literally go to a class, and they're like, this is how you do a hospital visit and don't sound like an idiot, you know. And so, um, and trust me, when you make a hospital visit, you feel like an idiot no matter what. And so that training is like kind of helpful. But one of the things they talk about is, is that, look, whether you see yourself this way or not, like if you're a pastor or you're like a minister or whatever, when you step into a hospital room, um, God uses your presence there as a reminder to them that you are with them. So in that sense, you kind of represent God a little bit. Um but also, when you walk out the door, he also uses that to remind them that, that you're not God and that he is God and he is going to stay with them no matter what. And even though you have to go, uh, he's, he never has to go. And so that idea, I, I think, is really formed in Paul, and I, I think that's why he's just constantly throwing that at him because he's like, look, I want you to know that I'm for you, and through that, you need to know that God is for you. And even though this is like one of the most jacked-up church situations ever, God has not abandoned them, Okay. So uh, so that's 23, 24. Uh, says, he says, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. To lord it over somebody um, means like to, to take authority or to assume authority uh, over something for someone. So he's saying we don't lord it over your faith like we have not been given authority. All right, Paul's like, I have no authority over your faith. You've not given it to me. I haven't taken it. I'm not assuming that. I'm not jumping to any conclusions. I'm not trying to play a role I'm not supposed to play. Uh, he's acknowledging that every one of you are free in Christ. It's your relationship with Jesus, your relationship with God that, that matters. Um, I'm not trying to be the boss of you. And I think, you know, based on some of the stuff I've read, like some of what people were kind of saying about him was that, like, who does this guy I think he is, you know? He's saying, like, look, just because I'm an apostle and just because I founded this church and I'm like a kind of a father figure in the faith to you, it doesn't mean that I'm taking responsibility for you and authority over you in that sense. But he, but he changes it. But we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. We work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. So, um, Basically, you know, he's kind of getting down to, like, the nuts and bolts of what, like, I think here's in one verse he really, not completely sums up, but does a great job of painting what biblical community should be doing. It's, It's a partnership. So you say, I'm not lording it over you, but I am working with you. We work together, and it's a development of faith. We work to develop each other's faith, and that results in joy. And it results in stability. And so as we are all growing up together in the faith, we're learning who Jesus is, we're learning who we are, we're learning to, to love the things that He loves and hate hate the things that He hates, and really just step in line with His will and His plan and who He is. Like we said last week, you know, how God has said amen to this church in particular, he said, I mean, he said yes to them in Christ. And so Paul says, and we amen that back to him through Christ. So Jesus looks at this church and says, yes, I've said yes to you, Paul says, and I step right in line with that. And that's what, what ministry is about. And so what we're doing is we're, we're basically looking around at each other all the time as a community and community groups and as a church. And next week at Potluck over phenomenal food, we are, are realizing, like, hey, we're in this thing together. So we are working together to develop each other's faith. And that leads to joy. It leads to stability. Paul's like, I'm not the boss of you, but I I guarantee you I'm partnering with you. And you're partnering with me. And that's so much of, of why we push one another. We push people into small groups and we push people to really wrestle with things and not just accept the status quo, and and we definitely kind of have this idea of, you know, Jesus Christ has the power to change any human life, right? So none of us are an exception to that. So if he has the power to change your life, he has the power to change my life, and he's put us in the same community to change all of our lives, and we're all going in the same direction, working through very similar issues, um, let's all do this together. Paul said, yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly it. We don't have authority over you, but we are partners together. We want to see your faith grow. We want to see you stand firm and there be that stability and that joy that comes from that. So, then verse 1 of chapter 2, now he gets into why he was sparing them. It says, For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one who I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. Okay? So here, real quick, is what he's talking about. Um, Paul, in Corinth for 18 months, starts this church, raises up these leaders, and he rolls out to another place to start another church. Uh, He leaves, the wheels come off. Uh, Things start getting weird, so he writes them a letter. And um, sends them this letter, and is like real specific and to the point. Uh, just kind of continuing to pastor them from far away. Uh, that letter got misinterpreted, you know, and it was just kind of confusing and stuff. And so, um, so he he gets word of this, and people go and talk to him. The church writes him another letter. So he sits down, and writes First Corinthians, and just n- nails it. Just writes all this stuff, addresses all their questions, all the issues, whatever. Um, from that point. Um, in First Corinthians, there was like an issue with a person in the church um, who uh, there's like this, this sin issue. Uh, this It was sexual sin, and it was bad deal. And he's like, you need to deal with this. And we'll get into that in a, in a little bit of, of how he dealt with it. He's like, you need to deal with this. Well, um, things didn't get dealt with correctly, and all kind of stuff just got really weird. And so Paul, um, this time instead of sending a letter, he's like, I'm going to show up in person. He shows up in person, and, uh, you would expect to be like, oh, Paul's here, great, everything's going to be awesome. Well, the the person who was causing all the problems, um, this, this whole, like, rebellion kind of thing had, had sprouted up. And we're not sure if it was, like, the one who was accused of the sexual sin and was called out about it, or if it was somebody else, but somehow this whole faction was against him. Paul shows up, and something went down, some, like, drama happened, and, uh... We've all been a part of church drama, right? Anybody who grew up in church has been to that awkward business meeting where like people are arguing over something completely ridiculous. But you're like 11, and your parents are like giving you something to color. You know, you're like, "I'm 11, I don't color." Uh, and and uh, so we've all kind of been there. This was a bad deal, like bad enough to where Paul refers to that visit as a painful visit. So he shows up, drama goes down. He goes back, and he's like, okay, I'm out, uh, not out of the situation, but like, I gotta get out of here. He goes back, he sits down, and he writes what he, he calls a painful letter, and, and sends it to him. And so, a painful visit led to a painful letter, where he really just told him like it was. Um, in Ephesians 4, he talks about speaking the truth in love, and that's really, that's really what he did. And the truth that they needed to hear was, was rough. Um, he didn't beat him up, but we, we don't know what he, what he said. But in his own words, the visit was painful, and the letter was even more painful. Okay? So that's what he's talking about, about. He's like, that's why I didn't show up. So he sends this letter that we haven't heard. He sends the painful letter after the painful visit. And he's hoping that the letter does some good, but he's not sure yet. And that's when he's writing this actual fourth letter, is he still waiting to hear how the painful thing went down. So he's explaining, basically, um, I didn't show up because I was not going to come to you uh, and have another painful visit. That was the Spirit-led conclusion he came to. He's like, you want to know why I changed my plans? Because the Spirit showed me that um, another painful visit would be of no benefit at all. Let's, let's read this again. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did. Okay, that's the painful letter. So that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should make me rejoice. What he's saying is, I wrote the painful letter so that the next time I show up, um, it's a a visit that's filled with joy and not um, the kind of pain and hurt that was there. So he's explaining himself in even more detail than he has before. And now he's really just, he's starting to to convey some things that are just very deep. And you really just see His, his love for them, especially in verse 4. Um, for I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. That's a, that's a gut-wrenching sentence right there. That's a gut-wrenching verse. Anguish, tears, pain... Like, look, I didn't, I didn't have that painful visit, and go back, and just like sit down and flippantly send you some letter. I didn't write that painful letter just as a reaction, you know. It wasn't in my flesh. So that that letter that came to you that was love. I'm, really, it's like okay, the drama and the disobedience and the rebellion got so bad that that's what it came to. And I, and I think we can understand like. like You've been in situations probably where like your parents were like I hate that it's come to this but it has. And sometimes parents just parents react and sometimes they're just like look. The last thing I want to do is punish you in this way. But but it's come to this and you need to understand that it's come to this. And I remember that was always just way worse than like getting whipped. I'm a fan of getting whipped because that was pretty effective with me. And everybody I knew that ever got whipped, like, they were good. And the kids didn't get whipped should have been getting whipped. Like, we were, like, offering, like, he wants to whip your kid because um, he's getting me in trouble at school. Um, I'm a fan of that, but way, way, way more than a physical spanking. It was just that that disappointment that would happen sometimes. And my parents were like, look, I hate this, come to this, but... This this is what's going to happen. You could tell it wasn't it wasn't overreacting. It wasn't anything else. It was like I have, have caused pain to them, and I'm pushing them into parts of parenting that they'd rather not go into. That's that's where he is. It's like I need you to understand the deep, abundant love that we have. So when Paul tells like the church in Ephesus in Ephesians four, like that like speaking the truth in love is how the body builds itself up. This is an example of what he's talking about. Now, sometimes love, is it comes from that affirming, you know, it's for your good. Uh, all the promises of God find their yes in Christ, and we say amen to that through Christ. And Jesus says yes. Sometimes it's super positive and super encouraging, and sometimes it's kind of warning and something like that. And sometimes it's like you just need to hear the truth. And I love you enough to not worry if you get mad at me or if your feelings get hurt or whatever. I love you enough to say this is what's got to happen. And then he goes into the next paragraph, which is even like at this point I'm just like, man, what a heartbreaking place for him to be. And then he moves into something that has uh, lovingly been called become called church discipline, which is the part that I would like to skip, but we won't. And this is why. Uh, look at verse five. Now, if if anyone has caused pain he's not caused it to me but in some measure not to put it too severely to all of you right um, there's a there was a person in the church and we aren't sure different theories some people think uh, if you go to 1 Corinthians 5 don't turn there but if you go to 1 Corinthians 5 it talks about there was there was the man who's caught in sexual sin and he told him how to handle that situation some people think that, that dude Uh, led the rebellion. So when Paul showed up on his painful visit, that that was the guy causing all the drama. Some people think it was his friends. Some people think it was another person, uh, you know, or or whatever. And we aren't really sure, but this is what we do know. Someone had caused some strife within this church. And it was sin that had caused it. Now, some were of the opinion that, like, because Paul was treated badly in his visit, that Paul was the only one affected by that sin. So Paul shows up on the painful visit. He's like, hey, how are y'all doing? And all this drama goes on and Paul goes away. People are like, oh, poor Paul. You know, he was he was affected by that. And what Paul's doing is saying, look, it, it's not about me. Sin affects all of you. It affects all of us. So look at it again. Uh, now, if anyone has caused pain, he's caused it not to me, but in some measure not to put it too too severely to all of you. When you talk about church discipline, you're really talking about uh, dealing with sin issues. Church discipline's got a bad rap because most people think it's that's how you kick people out of your church. Um, and that's not what church discipline is about. At its core, it's saying, okay, here is there's sin within this church body, and we need to deal with that and you deal with that because the sin does not only affect that one person or maybe their family or their close circle of friends sin affects the entire church even if nobody knows about it it affects the church in a, in this spiritual way this, this intangible way that we can't really see and then sometimes it does affect us in ways that we can see and so what Paul I think is doing is he's trying to to really let them like make sure they know like look don't underestimate sin. Don't underestimate the, the effects of what individual sin is going to have on this church. You're saying, I'm not the one that's being affected. He says, I'm not trying to be dramatic, but all of you are affected by this. I think you bring that into our context, and like it's it's really, really disarming to think about sin in that way. I'm like, wow, okay, so my sin impacts you. And your sin impacts me. I don't mean that as like Josh the pastor. Okay? Josh, a part of this community, sin impacts every single one of us that are part of this community. We can't underestimate that. I mean, it impacts the purity of this church, and it impacts the effectiveness of our mission together. So I think Paul is like, I think he's discipling them in a huge way here. I must be like, don't kid yourself. It's a big deal. See, what, for me, I mean, I think, at like completely foundational level, I think sin should break my heart. Because of my relationship with God, like you know, because like because I'm not a sinner, I'm a saint, and as a saint, I shouldn't be sinning. I'm mean, that's dumb. And so it affects my relationship with God, and, and all the and, and so, but my tendency is to think that like my sin is like, you know, like I'm in like a big like column or whatever. It's just like me and God. So it affects a lot of stuff here. You know, it's incredibly vertical. But to me, the thing it's not only vertical; it's also horizontal. I mean that that makes me kind of step back a little bit. And like Paul said, you know, he's not trying to not to put it too severely, not trying to be like over dramatize it. But the reality is that it affects all of us. In the next verse, verse six. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. Okay, so stop right there. For such a one, okay, so the, there was this one person in particular that needed to be dealt with. Um, and whether it was the person from 1 Corinthians 5 or whatever, we know it was the person leading the rebellion against Paul. And so apparently what had happened, um, like either Matthew 18, church discipline went down, or 1 Corinthians 5, church discipline went down. And we aren't really sure which one, um, but let me look at my notes real quick uh, just to make sure I get it right. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, uh, this is a rough summary, uh, Purge the evil person from among you. Purge him. Hand him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved. Hand him over to the devil. Purge the evil one from among you. All right, we're having the grace and compassion and mercy and hugs. Hand him over to Satan. <laughs> I mean, whoa, you know. I mean, when Jesus said it, it's like if, if there's sin, you go to the person, talk to him one on one. That doesn't work. Take two or three more, talk to him. Then you bring them in front of the church. If that doesn't work, you treat him like a pagan or a tax collector. Which in that day was like the worst possible label you could get, right? Now, what if it ever got to the church point, I, what am I gonna do? Like bring dude up here on the stage and be like, alright, all in favor of handing him over to Satan? Say aye. We throw him out the door, purge the evil. It says purge him. We're gonna purge him. I don't I don't know. <laughs> honestly, no, I honestly know. I I hope I never ever have to find out. Let's put it like that. But I do understand this. Dealing with sin has got to happen. So Jesus said, this is how you need to handle it. Here's the process that you handle it. Paul, and certainly in trying to make a point, is like, uh, hand him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved. So we tend to focus on the hand him over to Satan, destruction of his flesh part. But think about what destruction of his flesh means, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of Christ Jesus. See, church discipline is is not about kicking people out of the church because they don't behave the right way. And I I'll be honest with you, I did not do six weeks of studying on church discipline leading up to this. Uh, let me let me kind of give you my take on it as. Pastor of this church, in case you're wondering, I think church discipline comes down to four things, um, and I'm sure there are more. And so, I'm sure I'll add to this later if we ever get into like a real deal church discipline situation. I'll probably add to it. Um, here's my, here's my perspective on it, and I want you to know this um, for a lot of reasons. But one of them is I want you to know that this is a church that's not afraid to deal with sin. And we're just not going to be afraid of it. We're just we're not going to look the other way about it. I'll be real honest. Um, we're trying to get better about taking it straight on when things go down, because all of our our tendency is like, well, it's not really my place, and I don't really know. We don't have all the facts. And we're trying to figure out a way to like act like this that's happening should not. You know, like, well, maybe it's okay for it to happen. Whatever. It's like, no, that's full. And so we're trying to get better about helping about hearing the Spirit. Uh, to discern what to do in situations where we know that sin is going on. So let me just give you a couple things. I think it involves a couple things. I I think guarding the purity of the church, as a, a pastor who has to stand and give an account before God, in particular this church, guarding the purity of this church. Now, I know we'd like to think that we're all, like, pure, but certainly we all have issues at the same time. Okay, so guarding the purity of the church, True biblical goodness toward the offender. I'm going to try not to say sinner because I think terminology gets things all out of whack. Um, But the one who is like the offender, the one who is like doing the sin, the saint who is sinning, um, doing what's really like what true biblical goodness would be for them. Um, Because in our understanding of goodness, a lot of times we think it's just like doing what's what's nice or or brings the the least amount of drama back our way. Or whatever. Um, but actual, like, real biblical goodness is doing what's really best for that person in every situation. See, Paul wrote that painful letter because that was goodness for that church. Like, they needed to, to have the truth spoken to them in love. When we talked about Jesus as our prophet, our prophet, not a word, prophet, word. Uh, not like word, word, but word. Uh, Jesus is our prophet, priest, and king. King being authority, we like, oh, I dig that a whole lot. And priest being the one who mediates and the one like that relational side of things, like I like that. Jesus as the prophet punches you in the face when you need to be punched in the face with the truth. Jesus the prophet is not afraid to completely break you of sin and show you where, where you are wrong and, and just bring that strong word of warning or whatever it needs to be. But though Jesus the prophet is also Jesus the priest who makes a way and mediates and and understands reconciliation and restoration and and the king who oversees the the whole thing. So Jesus the prophet can speak that conviction knowing that he's also the one that's going to help make everything okay because he's the one that has authority over it. It's all three being in place. So, True goodness for the offender can be carried out because we are letting God show us what is truly necessary in that situation. Knowing that Jesus, the prophet, will be there to speak truth and the priest will be there to mediate and reconcile and the king has authority over the whole process and he is bringing us in on that. So it it makes Paul not afraid to sit down and write a painful letter because he's brokenhearted over their sin. It makes us within the church it should make us not afraid to look somebody in the eye and be like, dude, you know this is wrong. You know it. It's not it makes us not afraid as elders to think, hey, it may come down it may come down to this. That process may work itself all the way through at some point and we may have to like we may have to have a meeting where we sit down with someone. We believe that that's what goodness looks like in that situation. If Jesus, the prophet, priest, and king has told us this is what goodness looks like in this situation, then we're going to amen that and join him in that process. Because we're guarding the purity of the church. And it's what goodness looks like for the offender. Third thing is, it's just obedience. When we're being obedient to Jesus. Matthew 18, when he says, this is how you need to do that. And the fourth thing is that we are obedient because we just trust his process. Like, Jesus himself set up this process and said, here's how you need to handle conflict. Go talk to the person. If that doesn't work, two or three of you go talk to the person. If that doesn't work, the church needs to talk to the person. There's a whole lot of talking to the person in there. It doesn't say go talk bad about them. It doesn't say, find a passive-aggressive way to kind of drop some hints here and there, whatever. No. It doesn't mean, hey, go get the elders to go discipline them. Because if you come to the elders, you know what we're going to tell you? Have you talked to them? Oh, you haven't? Well, uh, we're third in line on that process. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> we're, that's how we're going to do that. Because we have to trust the process. So if we are, if we don't want to be obedient... We don't want to trust the process that God has set up. We don't want real goodness for one another, and we don't want the church to be pure, then just go ahead and send all you want, do whatever you want. We don't really care. When a church refuses to deal with sin, that's basically what we're doing. And so if you're a part of this church, if you are maybe going to attend one of the two membership classes in October, uh, you need to know that this is the kind of church that we are striving to be. Not that it's easy, not that it makes sense, not that we have it all figured out but we trust that Jesus, since this is his church anyway, knows what to do. So when we talk about sin, when we talk about, like, church discipline really, like, rolling forward, um, we're not talking about, like, people who are in process and dealing with sin. Because some of you are probably, like, super nervous right now that the hammer's about to drop, that the elders are getting on Facebook tonight, starting looking at pictures and status updates, to find out what's going on. Somehow, I got some editing to do. Um, some of you should do that anyway. By the way, but uh, I'm so half kidding uh, about that. So, um, what we're talking about, though, is we're talking about sin that is like unrepentant, rebellious, refusing uh, to to turn into to walk in obedience. We're talking about the kind of sin. Not when, like, you, when when someone comes to you and you're like, dude, this is wrong, and the person just starts crying like, I know, I just don't know what to do. We're not talking about that. We're talking about, um, we're talking about this. Hey, you're cheating on your wife and it's wrong. And the response being like, so? She's this and this and, this and all these reasons or whatever, so? And then, so then that person comes back with two or three more and it's like, look, we all know you're cheating on your wife and it's wrong. We want to help you through it. And the response is, I don't, I don't care. I'm not going to stop. So, okay. And the next process involves the church. At this church, that's when the, the elders would get involved. That's not like time up, drag them in front of this like Sunday meeting or whatever. That's when the elders would get involved. And how the rest of that plays out would, of course, depend on that person's response and what we feel the Spirit telling us to do. Uh, so... From then on, let's just say we aren't sure, and like I said earlier, I would love it if we never had to find out. Um, but I'm talking about the kind of rebellious sin where the person has no desire to repent, no desire to change, doesn't think that it's wrong, or even like, acknowledges that it's wrong but just doesn't really care. That's, that's what we're talking about. And what a removal from fellowship looks like, um, it's, it's tough to tell. If you look back at the text, Um, verse 6, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, okay? That, when it says majority, it basically, it it makes it sound like the church, as a group, decided to remove this person from fellowship. And so, really, that's what church discipline would, would ultimately land on, is, um, You've you gone on one-on-one, you've gone uh, two or three or more, you've gone to the elders of the church or whatever. Basically, it comes down to, okay, um, this sin affects the purity of our church, it affects the name and reputation of our Lord, uh, it hinders our effectiveness in, in ministry, and it is killing you. And the best thing for you is is for you to not be involved with our church anymore. Until there is genuine repentance. See, I think church discipline has a bum rap because you think it's uh, take the person, you know, tar and feather and whatever, you throw them out out the front door of the church, and you slam the door shut. But the reality is the, the door is never shut. If we have to remove somebody from fellowship, it's going to be um, if something changes for you, you come back to us. Because our desire is to walk with you through repentance and restoration and that's our absolute desire is for that. So if you get to that point, we're here and the door stays open and nothing is going to close it. And that's that is what handing them over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh so that their spirit may be saved. That's what it looks like. That's what goodness looks like sometimes. And I know it seems super harsh, but We have all been in situations where the worst-case scenario played out because we were just too prideful and too whatever, and you end up feeling isolated and alone and broken. And sometimes that's when your flesh is destroyed. I mean, that's that's just what it takes. And so you trust God in the process. And when he says, treat him like a pagan or a tax collector, It's like you're like someone who doesn't know Christ because you believe that the Spirit is involved in that entire process. The ideal would be for if one Christian is caught in sin and another Christian goes to him and confronts him, that it never goes past the one-on-one point because the Spirit just breaks you and you're like, ah, ah. You're right. And if it moves past there, we're just trusting that God is a part of that. And so... You need to know, as a church, that that's, that's where we're coming from when it comes to those kind of, of sin issues. Um, I'm, I'm a big, big, big believer in uh, the gospel being about come, come as you are, You know that you don't have to change all these behaviors and all this kind of stuff, whatever, like get yourself all cleaned up and then come to Christ. Like I think it's come as you are. But don't plan to stay as you are. Ever. Come as you are, but don't don't plan to stay that way. Because that's not how the gospel works. It's all about transformation and, and growth. And development of faith leads to joy and stability. I mean, all this stuff is going on, and we're going to keep speaking the truth and love at, to each other, and we're just going to keep doing that and keep doing that and keep doing that. And when sin creeps in, we're going to deal with it. And so if that's you, then deal with it. I mean, just deal with it. And if there's sin going on within our community, within your friends, don't be such a coward that you're unafraid to talk to somebody when you see them screwing up their lives. That's not goodness. That's not love. That's not grace. That's not the gospel. It's not Jesus. Let's deal with it. I would love for it to never get to the elder point, but if it does, you know you know how we're going to handle it, and you know where our hearts are. It's not about crushing people. It's not about controlling people and lording it over them. It's about working together for joy and stability. People's faith is developed. So, in this situation, verse seven, or let's go back to verse six. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather, okay, now this implies that this person was removed from fellowship, got convicted, and truly repented, and so now Paul is teaching them how to bring them back in, all right? So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow, all right? He's telling them to to change change their mindset and change their behavior. This person has been forgiven, so you need to forgive them. And now you need to comfort them to avoid excessive sorrow. Now, this is a whole other sermon, really, but I'm going to squeeze it in in just a few minutes. Okay? When people mess up and God forgives them, restores them, what, what all that beautiful everything that happens we need to step in line and amen what Jesus has done in their lives i think so much of the time people get they get their act together with the lord but their community is far less gracious and compassionate and loving and awesome and merciful than the lord is and it's exhausting And so, how awesome that Paul is like, okay, what you did is enough. Now that he's repented, that's implied. Now you need to forgive him and comfort him. It's like, wait a minute—the very person who caused all these problems and did all this stuff and all this—the very person we went through that whole process with and had to send them out, him out the door. Now we're just supposed to like come back in and act like everything's okay? Like, no, you don't. Forgiveness is not like pretending like nothing ever happened. That's one of the great like falseness things that we kind of fall into. It's like, oh, forgiveness means I. we just kind of go on and put on a happy face or whatever. That's not what forgiveness is. See, uh, in Jeremiah 31, when the the New Covenant uh, passages are coming along and stuff like that, part of the New Covenant, it says that, that God says, I will remember their sins no more. Now, God cannot forget because it's God, and so that kind of doesn't make since at first. I will remember their sins no more. What that actually means is I will not hold their sins against them. And so that's such a huge part of forgiveness is like, look, I know everything that that went down, but I do not hold it against you. To me, that's so much more powerful than somebody just pretending like, oh, okay, well, everything's okay now. Like, when you've messed up and you've confessed to that and sought for, you know, like, I mean, you've repented and everything's great uh, vertically and you're working on things horizontally, for the people who know every single thing that happened um, to walk up and to hug you, that, like, that's deep. That's the gospel. I mean, that's... You think Jesus has forgotten all of our transgressions, sin, that put him on the cross? No. But he doesn't hold, us against, hold it against us. Paul's saying, now, you need to bring that dude back in. And knowing everything that happened, love him. That's strong. He says in two separate letters, to forgive as we have been forgiven. It's like, all right, who am I to withhold it? Um, Look at the next part. Verse 8. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Reaffirm your love for him. Reaffirm your love for him. He said, Don't let it be assumed. You've got to show it. And that, I I appreciate that verse so much. Um, Well, for a lot of reasons. One reason I appreciate it is because. I feel like a part of the way that I'm wired, like I don't, I feel like I don't show things enough, um, and so it pushes me to make sure that that um, I'm not just rolling on assumptions that I'm like showing that that I'm reaffirming my love for people, um, re- regardless, but especially like as a, a part of forgiveness and restoration and all that kind of stuff. But another another way that that impacts me is that. I've been on the receiving end of people reaffirming their love for me after I've like screwed things up, and I've been on the other side as well of people knowing everything that happened, putting on a, a fake face, or just not talking about it, or just kind of avoiding you altogether. And that absolutely is miserable, and it is a huge hindrance to your own recovery. If you've been the one who messed things up, and you say, "Hey guys, I've messed. I, this is what, uh, whatever or whatever," and you're so you kind of step back. And then, like, things kind of happen. You bring yourself back in. And people are looking the other way. People are dodging you. are like, I know you know what happened, and you know what happened, and you know what happened. Well, our little adversary, Satan, I like to call him little because I think it's insulting. Our little adversary is looking for um, what what the Bible describes as a foothold. I tell people this all the time. Satan has really, really tiny feet. Also an insult. Also meaning it doesn't take much for him to get his foot in there. And because he has really tiny feet, he can take a glance or someone dodging you or someone not being, you know, whatever. And so if, if, if that's the person that knows everything that you did and they know you confessed it and they know that you're trying to be restored and they still dodge you, and they still whatever, and they're still weird toward you, he gets his little foot in there and starts just messing with you, lying to you. So I think that's another part of Paul. I think he's saying, I beg you, reaffirm your love for him. Don't go on assumptions. Go out of your way that he knows you love him. God has forgiven him, and you forgive him too. And you know everything, and you're not holding it against him. I think, I think it's it's beautiful. I mean what a great pastoral point to bring out. It's amazing. Look, look where he goes from there. Verse nine. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. I say, look, I'm pushing you to be obedient. I say I could have had the painful visit, gone back, pouted, whatever, and then like come back later. But he's like, No. I'm going to keep pushing you because I love you. I'm going to test you. I'm going to push you to obedience. Verse 10, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I've forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. All right? So look at this, all this forgiveness. Like, you forgive them, I forgive them. He's like, I trust you with this process. I'm joining you in this process. Any forgiveness that's happened has happened in the presence of Christ. Like, Jesus is a part of this. If any forgiveness ever happens, ever, it's because Jesus is a part of it. Look at the last part. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan. But we are not ignorant of his designs. Outwitted by Satan. Because we're not ignorant of his designs. See, our little enemy with little feet wants to come into a room like this and just fracture Left and right. Fracture, 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 fracture. fracture, Everywhere. He wants to create little divisions and little walls and little groups and whatever. And that's his design. Because when he does that, that hinders development of faith. It hinders the effectiveness of the church, purity of the church. It hinders the reputation of Jesus. It hinders absolutely everything that's going on. So I think Paul saying, reaffirm your love for him is by, okay, if you reaffirm your love for him, we completely take away one of his designs that he's trying to use against this church. And you've got to be aware that we have an enemy who wants to hinder things. He wants to frustrate what Christ is doing in and among us. And so we're just not going to let him do that. We're not going to let him do that. We're going to deal with sin in the way that Jesus says. We're going to trust his process. We're going to trust the Christ in each other. We're going to trust that if someone is being dealt with and they are not saved, that that process will bring about salvation in them. We're going to speak the truth in love to each other. And so, when, when I, I look at, at all that, I mean, my reaction is, you no, know, I don't. I don't want to put. Um, I don't want to put Jesus' reputation, uh, everything that affects God, I don't want to happen. And I don't want to compromise this church. So what I want to do is, I want to say, I'll, my goal is for no one to ever have to come down and look me in the eye and take step one of church discipline, ever in my entire life. Like, I want to walk in that kind of integrity and holiness and uprightness. Now, I understand grace, and I'm not saying, like, I want to live all fake and whatever, but, like, that's what I want to go for. Like, it doesn't make any sense for me to ever put this church through that kind of pain of having to deal with that. But I don't want you to hear that as me, the pastor, talking about that to the congregation, you know. I want you to hear me saying that as, like, uh, I'm a covenant member. Just like those of you who are covenant members, like I'm in a community group with you know other people, and I I live as a part of this community. Like I don't I don't know. There's no like I'm up here and y'all are down here. And I'm not speaking as like the passion. I'm just being, as a part of this community. I don't want any of you to ever have to do that. So that puts it on me. And what I would love is for you guys to say like I don't want that either. I don't want anybody to have to, have to look me in the eye and confront me about sin. So um, so my deal is I'm going to pursue holiness so that this church doesn't have to be put through that. And I would challenge you to pursue holiness so that this church doesn't have to be put through that. I mean, to me, it just makes sense. So that's why I go back to that song that we sang. It's like, uh, you know, so I'll stand with the arms high the heart of the... I mean, when you look at who God is, that's your natural response. Well, to me, when you look at the gospel, natural response is I just don't want to be an idiot. I, just, I just, my, So I just won't be stupid. So I will pursue holiness and not pursue sin. And be aware that the devil is scheming against me all the time. And I will walk in integrity and trust what he has done among us. That's a, that's a huge challenge. Um, one that would be impossible were it not for the fact that Jesus lives inside of us and has the power to change any human life. Paul would not be pushing them in this direction if God were not empowering everything that they were doing. And so I bring that to us tonight to chew on, see what God has for us. Uh, let's stand together. The band's going to come up. Um, as always, we, we're going to sing just for a few minutes. Um, one of the reasons why, why I like the way services build like this, so I make you like it too, Um is because I feel like it's, it's easy to, um, to just kind of hear something. Maybe something gets stirred through a song or a verse or whatever. Um, I think it's easy to just kind of peace out as soon as the lights come up and things are over with. Um, and in my opinion, when we sing, uh, it is, we're responding to what God has done up, up until this point in various ways. I think there's something about the church standing together and singing together as a response that makes it really difficult for the enemy to come in and steal it. Uh, parable of the sower, the enemy is described as a bird. Also an insult. Um, I think it's birds, but I think it's just funny. He's like, oh, it's a little bird. Uh, and the truth is like a seed that falls in on the ground, and the bird comes and snatches it takes it away. I think... Stuff like tonight can get stirred up, whether talking about community and what the church should do or, or sin or you know, all this kind of stuff, whatever. It'd be so easy for that truth to hit our hearts. And if we, to me, if we disrupt too quickly, uh, the enemy just comes in and is like, what are you going to eat tonight? Can't believe the saints lost that game, you know? Comes in and just takes something away that is really a super, super important to you. And so... I think that singing is kind of is kind of cheesy, but I think it's kind of like putting dirt on top of that seed. I think it's a way of us kind of like protecting what God has done in us tonight um, from those schemes, so that later on you can continue to process it. And so we're just going to sing as a response, and uh, then we'll, we'll dismiss. Let me let me just pray over us real quick. God, thank you. Um, thank you for this letter. I thank you for. Um, Paul just being such a faithful pastor to this church and um, God even though I I know I just talked a long time and I just I pray that uh, individually uh, it would make sense to us while we were all here for songs or or uh, scriptures or handshakes and hugs or maybe maybe just to be in a room of people who are on the same boat pray God you'll use whatever you got it just I pray that as we sing it would be like dirt being packed in over that seed and it would just protect it um, just that you might be glorified and uh, pray it in Jesus name amen